Welcome to a new episode of Sharing Sweat Equity, a business podcast produced by the El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and your Minority Women's Enterprise Diversity Center. I am your host, Michelle Luevano. Today we have a session focusing on the Texas oil and gas industry. But before we do that, I would like to thank our partners, Sun Carpets. Of course, they provide the insulation for our studio back at the Global MWEDC Training Center. Unfortunately, we are not able to use that right now due to social distancing and stay home work safe guidelines. But we are looking forward to getting back into our studio, hopefully very soon. I also want to thank Epicenter. If you are looking for commercial real estate in the El Paso area, make sure to give Epicenter a call. There's been a lot going on in the world, but one of the things that the El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce has been tracking very closely is what is going on in our Texas oil and gas industry. It's a major industry for the state of Texas. It's crucial to our state GDP, our state economic development. So it's something that we have been tracking. And as a part of our tracking, we have brought in a an industry expert and a very good friend of the chamber, Mr. Luke Legate. Before we get started and before um, I introduce Mr. Legate, I want to go over a couple of housekeeping items. First off, I am Michelle Luevano. I am the host of this session and I am the project director for the Minority Women's Enterprise Diversity Center. We will be doing a few uh, panel questions just between myself and Luke to get us started. So without further ado, I would like to go ahead and introduce Mr. Luke Legate. I'm gonna give a little bit of your bio, uh, Luke. I know it's pretty extensive, but I just wanna give everybody a, a little bit of an idea of your experience. So over the past- Thank you. <laughs> of statewide speaking engagements, countless cups of coffee and the occasional dove hunt, Luke has built a network of relationships that span the social and political spectrum. Friends in every legislative and congressional district in Texas include everyday people, small business owners, union leaders, schedulers, executives, and elected officials at all levels of government. These influencers are more than entries on a spreadsheet. They are colleagues from both sides of the aisle who will take Luke's call because they know their time will be well spent, their minds enlightened, and their confidence maintained. Whether they sign an opinion piece, visit Capitol Hill, or participate in a town hall meeting on behalf of uh, Luke's clients, they trust that Luke only reaches out on issues he know will matter to them. Luke has extensive experience working with the Texas oil and gas industry, and he is the director of GFOX Consulting. He joined GFOX Consulting in 2002 after years on the political campaign circuit. Um, he's equally proud of his hometown, Klein, Texas, and his alma mater, the University of Texas. He lives in Austin with his wife, Beth, and their children, but I know that you actually usually spend most of your time on the road. So before we actually get started, how is it being at home and how are your <clears throat> wife and children dealing with having you at home all the time now, Luke? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you would probably be better off asking my wife that question, um, but it, it is definitely a change. I, I feel very... Uh, uncomfortable doing things over the phone because I'm so used to doing things face to face. I mean, there's nothing better than jumping on a flight to El Paso and spending a couple of days out there visiting with folks and, and driving across the state. Uh, I really missed it, but I, I will tell you that the blessing of it all is I have two boys that are four and eight. Uh, and despite all the challenges of homeschooling and, <clears throat> you know, multiple meals being prepped during the day and <laughs> juggling all that, 
uh, we're getting to spend a lot of quality time together and we have dinner together more. And so that's the silver lining. And I, I have to look at, I try to stay positive. And so we're, we're adjusting, but I, I think my wife is probably more ready for me to, to hit the road. Uh, <laughs> well, once you are ready to hit the road again, we're happy to have you in El Paso, take you out for some margaritas, some tacos, uh, and catch up with you. Oh, I, I would love, I, nothing but would be better. So, <laughs> but it's good to be with y'all. And, and, and uh, I always have a, a fondness for you, you guys at the chamber. And I always want to make sure I check in with you guys every once in a while, good and, and during good times and bad times. So uh, I know we're all struggling uh, across the board. And so uh, hopefully we can weather this process and I can give some information today that might be of use and see where we go. So I want to start things off. I mean, we've talked, you know, you've already mentioned things are strange for people. These are pretty turbulent times for individuals, family, industries across the country. But the oil and gas industry has taken a particularly hard hit. And I don't think it is just from coronavirus. It has kind of been a perfect storm of things going on in international politics. And then, of course, with this pandemic as well. So talk to us a little bit about how coronavirus and other world events and policy decisions at the federal and state level are really affecting the industry. And how did this lead to this level of trouble in the industry? Sure, uh, what you, you did a great summary uh, of that. And, and it really is a one-two punch uh, that, you know, in itself, you know, the very, let me back up, the very first issue that we had even before the, the coronavirus really um, became, you know, the, the mainstay is international uh, relations. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia and OPEC and Russia uh, had some deals that expired uh, and that wanted to uh, lift some of their, um, to their, their rates of production. They wanted to increase that number. They had agreed upon a uh, uh, set amount of production. Once that uh, agreement expired, they then decided to uh, literally flood the the international and the, uh, the world market with with crude oil. We've seen this happen before. Uh, we've seen it happen in uh, 2008, uh, 2014, 2015, where they counted on getting some of the market share back. Um, because we've been so successful in the United States, particularly in Texas, with the advantages that we have in this country and the advances in technology, you know, state-owned and country-owned uh, entities like in OPEC countries and Russia, you know, they they are a cartel. They they mandate what what can be done. In our free market system in the United States, we have hundreds of thousands of companies innovating and competing with each other. And so when the price did go down, a lot of companies figured out how they could even produce more, more efficiently with the advent, at, uh, with the inventions of hydraulic fracturing, fracking, uh, horizontal drilling, uh, you know, using better technology and to harness oil. So we've seen this before, but what the wild card in all this is, is the coronavirus. At the same time, when this occurred, so number one, you've got that issue going on internationally. The second wave of this 
is we are seeing a global shutdown of commerce. You know, we are seeing 30 to 40% less global demand for oil and crude products. I always tell people, it's like, you know, I'm a sort of an outlier on the amount of miles I drive, but I've (laughs) talked to people in West Texas, South Texas, Houston, Dallas, El Paso, other places. And a lot of people can't even remember the last time they filled up their car uh, because they're not driving to work. They're not driving to school. They're, you know, they're staying home and, and doing the right thing that we need to do as, as Texans. But if you think about, you know, if, if you're just one person, multiply that by 400, 500 million people around the world, uh, you can see that the global demand has, is, has vanished. I've heard from a number of companies that gasoline demand is down over 50%. Jet fuel is down 90, 95%. Uh, diesel price, uh, diesel demand is also down, even despite, you know, our trucks are still running. But we're just seeing a global shutdown of the economy. And so that has caused all kinds of ripple effects. You you know, we've seen, you know, uh, what was it last week? We saw prices go negative uh, on the futures market. That basically said, you know, that there was no demand for that product. And in fact, people would say, I don't even want it because it's going to cost me to store it. You put that in, in together with storage issues. We are now, um, we're not 100% full in our storage, but we're getting close and we're filling that up. So uh, producers ha- are reacting in the right way. Um, and I'll, I'll speak about that in a little bit, but I just wanted to pause there and, and have your next thought, next question. And so I'll talk a bit, little bit about how producers are reacting to this market. With, with You talked a little bit about Saudi Arabia and the flood of oil into the marketplace, and obviously that's led to lower prices for consumers, even though at the same time demand has been going down since people are staying at home. I mean, you see on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram all the time these little memes that are like, I feel like I'm 16 again, where I'm grounded and stuck at home, but gas is a dollar, you know, 75 a gallon. <laughs> um, so you right. see you see those kind of things going around. The price of gas is the lowest it's been in a very long time. And what might be good for consumers in terms of having a low gas price for those that still have to go to work who are essential workers is not necessarily good for the industry and of course for the workers in the industry. So what kind of impact has this had on workers? How has it really impacted municipalities and businesses who were at the center of what was previously an oil boom. You saw businesses and towns popping up around the industry. And now that the industry is suffering, how are these towns managing? Well, that, that is the, uh, we, we, we don't know how bad the damage is just yet uh, until we sort of see the after effects. Um, we know just, you know, anecdotally that Obviously, things have slowed down, so you have to look at a perspective of the overall industry. For example, last year in 2019, the Texas oil and gas industry paid $16 billion in state and local taxes and and state taxes that went into the legislative budget, essentially. Um, You're looking at, you know, $16 billion that went to fund education, transportation, um, you know, road funding, health and human services, state education, obviously, all of those things are a big part of our state's budget. 
And so when the price of oil drops, the amount of severance tax that the industry pays every time that our industry drills a well and pulls a product out, either oil or natural gas, we, are, we pay a severance tax to the state of Texas. And last year, that number, again, was $16 billion, one of our highest numbers we've ever paid. So we showed how well the industry could do. But when those numbers were released, we always said the caveat, this is not guaranteed. Market conditions can change. Uh, you see that already happening. Uh, the comptroller, Glenn Hager, has been doing briefing calls with business leaders and cities and, and counties across the state saying that, you know, cities are, are going to have to adjust. I mean, just from a uh, perspective, I mean, if, if you look at the valuations in counties that heavily rely on oil and gas production, you're going to see, you know, some large drops. Uh, sales taxes are going to go down across the board. Um, that are related to the oil and gas industry. You know, the, the, the good news is, I guess, a lot of people, including myself, are, are spending a lot more on groceries and home deliveries and other things. Uh, so maybe some of that sales tax will, will be a little bit better. But the valuation of that is really going to have an impact. And, you know, there's, there's no easy way to say it. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an impact on families. It's an impact on business owners and um, you know, we're seeing some some tough times and, you know, all we can do is is continue to look forward and hope that we can get out of this crisis and continue in terms of, of gas prices. I mean, you know, gas prices are always, you know, uh, you know, politicians will joke they love when gas prices are low because then they're doing their job or, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, if you think about the price of gas that we've paid in this country and during my lifetime, I'm almost 50 years old. And, you know, in the early 70s, gas spiked up, you know, near a dollar. And here we are 50 years later in some parts of the state, it's a dollar nine, dollar ten. Uh, and remember, you know, a good percentage of that is is taxes that go to the federal government and the state government. So gas is, is definitely cheaper. Uh, I, I don't think anybody wants to see a, a huge rise in gas tax in gas prices, but you know, we want to see them in a comfortable range. Uh, where the economy is is humming and consumers are still paying a decent price. The good news is, thanks to the innovation in the in the in the projects and the uh, oil production and the shale that we've done in this state, that has kept our energy prices very very low. It wasn't too long ago that gas was three four dollars uh, a gallon, if y'all can remember, uh, in, in the you know in the last what five ten years or so. Yeah, I, re I remember those times because I was living in California, so it was closer to uh, $5 an hour for me, Luke. $5 a gallon for me. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, as things go, we, you know, we ebb and flow with things. But, you know, thank goodness that this industry really uh, did get us through some of those turbulent times because back then we were held a little bit more at the mercy of, of foreign sources of oil. And so when they decided to not pump as much, we saw the price go up because we didn't have the ability uh, to drill in the United States as much as we, you know, with, with what we've had. So if you kind of think about it, we, we, we were pretty spoiled there for a while and now we've, we're seeing even lower prices. And so uh, again, it's all about our, our nation's security and what we can do. Uh, we wanna maintain a healthy, robust environment for our industry where we're all competing and the consumer ultimately benefits from that. 
I feel like things have changed so drastically in less than a year. It's almost a complete 180 from the last time that we talked to you. The last time that we talked, we talked about businesses growing up around around these towns that were that were experiencing this boom in oil and the need for more infrastructure development. And we had the conversation about hotel prices being through the roof. And now we're just in such a, a different situation. No, no question. I mean, we went from, you know, the the boom days of, you know, $300 a night hotels in West Texas and, you know, uh, people making $20, $25 an hour at fast food restaurants. And, and we're seeing a lot of that just absolutely evaporating. Um, you know, there is still economic activity going on. It's obviously at a much slower, slower pace. Um, but you're right. I, I was thinking back to the last time I was there about you know, how much bragging we were doing about how well we're doing. And here we are a year later and we're, you know, we're in a tougher time. It's, 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 again, it's that one, two punch. The good news is this industry is resilient and Texas is uniquely qualified to rebound from this. If you look at what we have in our fundamentals of our state, we have more ports than anyone else. We have obviously robust trade with Mexico uh, we have pipeline infrastructure in this state. We have over 450,000 miles of pipeline. We have liquefied natural gas plants that are being constructed along the Gulf Coast to bring Texas natural gas to the world to improve air quality. Where places are burning coal today will be soon burning Texas natural gas. We have, you know, the infrastructure of all of the drilling equipment, all of the the manpower that we have in this state, and so. Is it going to be overnight? Absolutely not. But I think we're going to see a slow rebound as the economy continues to reopen and reemerge. When we see the global market continue to hopefully open up safely, um, but you know we've we've been in <laughs> we've been in tough times like this. This is probably one of the toughest I've, I've been told. Uh, but again, we have to look at the fundamentals of what we have in this country. We have advances in technology. We have the free market. We have innovation and, and pioneers out there that are, you know, figuring out how to do this business even better, even more safely. And so I think, you know, we're going to rebound. We've, we've, we've seen this before, um, you know, it crashes in the 80s and other times. Um, but we want to continue to just keep those, that framework and, and, pro, and, and keep that goal set of, of trusting the market. It, it's very painful right now. I mean, we we're seeing it across the board. So I want to talk a little bit next about some of the things that we've been hearing in the news and and the potential impact that that could have um, further on the Texas oil and gas industry. So we've been seeing discussion around running out of tankers, running out of places to store oil, um, and of course, like a potential shutdown of the industry as a whole. So can you talk to us a little bit about the potential for these actions and really how it's gonna further impact prices and impact workers in the industry? Well, without question, you know, storage capacity is, is, is a major issue. Uh, the good news is that we have uh, a, a fairly vast network of this storage capacity in this country that we've been investing in for, for decades. Um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the SPR is also um, is an option to continue to build that reservoir up. Um, we're seeing, you know, we, we're still seeing demand. I mean, we're still having to 
and don't don't forget, you know, I always remind folks that it's we're not just talking about gasoline and and diesel and jet fuel. Um, you know, a typical barrel of crude will contribute to you know about 95% of the products that we use every day, from plastics to heart valves to medicines to makeup to you know bumpers to you name it. Um, if 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 we're using it in our modern society, there's a good chance that product has some sort of base of petroleum. Uh, same goes with road materials and asphalts and fertilizers and everything uh, that we have to use. So, yes, it, there is still the, the industry is not going to shut down uh, completely. Is it going to protract and, and 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 cut production? You bet. And we've already seen that. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in, in the next question. But you know, it, it, of course, it has an effect. Um, if if you do not have you know, a hundred drilling rigs working in the Permian Basin, uh, that takes, you know, each one of those rigs takes typically a couple hundred to, you know, a thousand type of, of service workers. And we've seen reductions in that, and it's very painful to see. Um, but by no means are we going to shut down this industry. Um, you know, I've heard people say, well, we should do just a hundred percent renewable energy, which we need all the energy we can get in this country and renewable energy is made with petroleum products, whether it's wind turbines or solar panels or electric batteries. We all we all have to work in this energy portfolio together. So, um, I, the rumors of of the of the oil and gas industry closing up are are vastly exaggerated. I would say. So I want to shift focus a little bit. We've been talking a lot about the impact that this has been having specifically on Texas and workers, but I want to flip it a little bit for this next question, Luke and talk about the impact that this is having on our relationship with other countries nationally, um, internationally. So really at the heart of a lot of these issues that started in the industry before we even got into this coronavirus situation was relationships with Saudi Arabia and Russia. So how are these issues in the oil and gas industry potentially affecting our relationship with these countries? Boy, that's a that's a complicated, good question. Uh, <laughs> I wish I I wish I had an easy answer for that. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that we've learned and what I've seen in my last you know twenty years of being around this business is we have gone from a a, a nation that completely depended on foreign sources for the vast majority of our energy needs. Today, we no longer have to depend on that. Now, it's the caveat is, uh, you know, market forces are, are at work, global uh, prices and things. We're in a better position today than we were 10, 15 years ago, thanks to the shale revolution. Um, they could very easily have turned the valve the other way and curtailed production, causing our energy prices to skyrocket, you know. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so long ago that we saw $140 barrel of oil when we saw previous things occur like this in the market with OPEC and other countries. So, yeah, our, our relationships with them are, are very complicated. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that, that move into it. But, you know, bottom line is we are actually more secure in our energy today, believe it or not, because we are producing more in this country than we've ever had. You know, there was a time when we were importing more and more oil and producing less and less in this country and it actually changed. And so in the long term, 
we're in a better position uh, if we're able to control our own destiny of producing our oil here that we need and also even sell into the market. You know, prior to, prior to 2015, our industry was not able to sell excess capacity that we drilled in this country to foreign sources. And so we were not allowed to participate in that world market. And so that was a very important thing for our industry to keep us moving and keep our industry thriving. If we were able to sell our excess capacity and production into the market, that benefited Texas because we were producing more, paying those taxes, employing those workers, and shipping that product across the world. I want to, my next question for you is to look towards the future and to hopefully find some, some positivity uh, in this situation. You talked before about how Texas is resilient and we will come back from this and the industry will come back from this, um, which I think gives people hope for the future. But I want to ask you, what does the industry need to start turning things around again? Obviously, we've got to flatten the curve. Uh, there are those kinds of issues so we can start producing at a higher level again, so we can really start having people go back to work, increasing demands, things like that. But what else does the industry need to start recovering already? Sure. Um, in fact, we're already fast at work on a, on a lot of measures. Um, we've been working with first let me, let me say i agree with you um you know we've we've faced tough times as a nation and uh as a state and uh our our ability to rebound and and prosper uh i i'm, I'm proud that we live in the united states where where this is possible um however we we are actively looking for some options to to help encourage the rebound of this industry that's so vital for the for the nation uh just just like every other business sector out there uh, across the board, whether it's retail, restaurants, telecommunications, et cetera. Uh, what we need is regulatory certainty. We need to know that in these times that we're gonna stay the course and adhering to our free market principles that we're not gonna you know, increase the burdens of, of producers above and beyond you know, what is necessary. Um, we may have some options for some expedited permitting, maybe some expedited uh, fees, uh, collections, maybe delays in some of those to help the industry rebound and become prosperous and, and generate that you know, $16 billion again, uh, hopefully very, very soon. But it's also very important that we're not gonna sacrifice safety or environmental issues. You know, so all these tools that we're working with the Texas Railroad Commission and the Texas Governor's Office is they've come to us and said, you know, let's hear some ideas about what we can do in the short term and in the long term to help improve the condition of this industry based on science, science-based regulations, science-based technology where we're using the best and the brightest tools that we have to help this industry rebound. I, I look at, you know, uh, the example of the restaurants uh, are now, I don't know how things are going in El Paso, but we've got restaurants that are now selling kits of, of margaritas to go or, you know, Bloody <laughs> Marys or something. Uh, that's a pretty neat thing that is probably helping keep a restaurant uh, employ some folks. Maybe not everybody, but maybe it's moving. Maybe there's something like that that we can do. And again, not compromising safety or, or environmental issues, but 
you know, we're, we're, we're actively working with the Texas Railroad Commission. In fact, we are putting together a, a sort of a, a plan of attack uh, for them to consider not only in the short term, but even uh, looking into next session in January. I think that's going to be a, a crucial thing that we might have to have some some changes. And that's that's what we need. And and first and foremost, we, we need we need Texas working again safely. Um, nobody wants to see, you know, anyone, any more people get sick. But we also, you know, feel and my personal belief is, you know, we, we have to continue to slowly recover our economy safely. Um, and when we see that demand and commerce can continue, hopefully things will get a little bit better. Um, I think we're all we're all in this together for sure. <laughs> and I think that you know the the silver lining in this situation if there is any is that as we have been faced with this this incredible change to the way that we do business it has forced us to become more innovative, more entrepreneurial in the way that we function across all industries. And so I see good things in terms of the innovation and the way that we change how we do business coming out of this at the end of the day. I do want to go ahead um, and open it up to questions from the audience right now, Luke. And so just again, if you would like to submit questions via Zoom, you can submit questions via the question and answer panel. If you are feeling brave, you can go ahead and ask questions by raising your hand and asking live on the air. And if you're tuning in with us on Facebook, Patrick Espinosa, our communications director, is standing by to send us whatever comments you submit in the comment section on Facebook. We do have a couple of questions that came in while we were talking. The first one, um, clearly you have some kind of mind meld going on with one of our attendees because they asked specifically about a story that came out today that the Texas Railroad Commissioner has called for a 20% cut in oil production. Um, and the commissioner promises to put forth a plan with the Railroad Commission at a meeting next week and will call for a vote. So can you talk to us a little bit about this proposal and this plan? Sure, sure. That's an excellent question. Uh, and I, I, I didn't plant that question, I promise. Uh, you know, even though I, I know there's there's some friends and, and familiar folks on, on the line. You know, what what this all started, um, it's the Railroad Commission was presented with a, a petition, essentially, by a couple of companies to enact what they call proration. Proration is the state uh, railroad commissions to use the authority to ask producers to throttle back a, a certain amount of production. Uh, I believe it started at 10 percent then went to 20 percent. Um, but what we're seeing in, in the Railroad Commission on April 14th took about 10 hours of testimony from 55 uh, different commenters. It went on for, like I said, 10 hours. Uh, there was um, people from all four, uh, uh, from 49 states. One state, I guess, missed out on the on the opportunity. Uh, there was, I think, over 20,000 uh, people that listened online uh, mm -hmm. from you know dozens of countries around the world. And it showed you how powerful the Texas oil and gas industry is with that kind of interest for people to sit through and not not just geeks like me that listened for 10 hours but you know from people all over the world to hear what's going on in texas and so the idea is that you know the railroad commission would implement something like this and the last time it was done it was over 50 years ago um and it is uh, we as an industry 
have opposed this because the real issue is companies are already cutting back on their capital expenditures and production. The market is already working. As painful it is, as it is, you're already seeing companies reducing that. They, you know, uh, uh, Todd Staples at the Texas Oil and Gas Association, uh, I must steal his joke, but we know in Texas that if, you know, it costs $10 to make a plate of barbecue and you can only sell it for $5, you don't need the government to tell you to stop making barbecue, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, if, if we do these mandatory cuts, and well, what's that going to look like? You know, uh, one, one producer uh, said, if Texas did this by itself, what's to say uh, Oklahoma doesn't do it or North Dakota or Pennsylvania or Colorado? Um, if a company has a portfolio of wells, let's say, and they're particularly strong in some of their best wells are in the Eagle Ford Shale, for example. But they were told, if they're told by the Railroad Commission that they have to cut 20% of that, they're probably going to take that dollars that they're spending on those profitable Eagle Ford Shale wells and potentially move it to the Bakken Shale in North Dakota, where they don't have uh, a government-mandated production quota. So it's very dangerous to to start trying to meddle in the net in the in the in the market. We feel like the free market can adapt to this better than than government can. Um, no offense against our railroad commission regulators and others, but by the time that we actually even tried to implement this, you know, we we could be in a different situation, uh, you know, months from now. And so. You know, I think it was pretty clear that, you know, that that message resonated with with the Railroad Commission. Um, they may vote on it. Um, I, I won't make any predictions or anything like that because, you know, these days anything can happen. But, you know, the free market is is what we've what we've relied on and what has made Texas great for so long. Um, you know, we we didn't institute these policies when we were in other crises in 08. 9-11, others, um, you know, purchasers are already restricting volumes and that's saying producers are curtailing their production. Um, you know, you've got companies that have already actively shut in wells to come back and drill them at a later time. So the market is working. Um, and again, our position has always been, let's let that market continue to react as painful as it is. Um, you know, there was no evidence that cutting production by 20% would save one job. Uh, there's, there's no, there's no real data to back that up. And of course, we, we want to look at every option out there, but fundamentally, that's where we stand. So the next question that we got, Luke, is um, really focusing on the future of oil and gas companies. So how have oil and gas companies been retooling their process and what challenges are they seeing as they make those painful changes uh, at times that that they have to make? Well, no question. I mean, it, it you're seeing companies adapt. I mean, um, you know, some some companies that are, you know, uh, are on the chemical uh, manufacturing side have adjusted their their production to use, you know, to make hand sanitizer. Uh, we've seen we, you know, it's kind of what you said earlier, Michelle, you know, we're all adapting and innovating. I think Exxon Mobil over in Baton Rouge converted a, um, 
some sort of, and I won't get the terminology right, I'm, no, I'm certainly no chemist, uh, but they converted some of their facilities to manufacture, you know, hundreds and thousands of, ga- of gallons of hand sanitizer to deliver to healthcare workers and, and hospitals. And, you know, that's one way they're innovating. Um, I, you know, products may, may shift. Um, you know, you've seen some refineries that have had to curtail their, their production because obviously the, the demand is not there. So it is adapting to what the market will bear. And right now the market is down. Um, you know, uh, when, when you, when you have, you know, 30 to 40% drop in global demand, um, companies have to adapt to that, that new normal, uh, for now. And hopefully we can continue to rebound. The next question that we've got coming in is about how the, and this one is actually coming in via email, how, uh, clean energy and, is going to play a part in the recovery of the industry. You talked a little bit before about, you know, the need for all of these industry sectors to work together, clean energy, the oil and gas industry. So how is clean energy going to come together with the oil and gas industry to start, you know, getting the the demand back up and to start working on repairing the industry? Well, again, you know, no question. I mean, I, I always tell people, you know, if people will say, if you you know work with the oil and gas industry, you you must not support renewables, and, and and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, you know Texas is the leader in wind wind energy in the United States. We produce more wind energy than any other state, including California. Um, it's a vital part of our of our grid uh, and our needs as a growing state. You know today we have what probably 30 million people in the state. We're going to have probably 50 million in the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. We need all the energy we can get whether it is solar energy, uh, you know, wind power, natural gas, you know, all, all of these have to work together. You know, in the typical situation um, in the wind power grid, from what I'm told, there are instances where if the wind is not blowing at a certain rate or even too high or too fast or too slow, natural gas kicks in as a backup for that reliability that we all need in this, in this state. Uh, no one wants to see power surges or blackouts, brownouts, et cetera. Uh, we need that. Uh, we're seeing it with natural gas vehicles. You know, we're seeing uh, fleets are growing. You know, a lot of the uh, fleet cars and, you know, trash trucks and, and school buses and things are, are now converted to natural gas, which I consider a, a much cleaner alternative to some of the older diesel engines that used to, to operate in, in dense cities. Uh, clean energy is always going to continue to lead to, uh, you know, continue to improve. Uh, same with oil and gas. I mean, we're using oil and gas more efficiently today than we ever have. And so I just think it's, it's not a zero-sum game where we can say we can have all renewable energy without any fossil fuels. Because, again, go back to what I said earlier. In order to make a wind turbine, you need fossil fuels. You have to produce concrete to anchor them in the ground. You have to have chemicals to make and, you know, all the building blocks to make these very, very large and, and huge windmills, uh, same with solar and batteries. So it all works in concert together. And so as America and as, as the United States and Texas, <clears throat> we need to continue to expand all forms of energy and some things that we probably haven't even dreamed of yet are coming our way. Our next question that's coming in is focused on the recovery of the oil and gas industry. And the question is about how quickly do you think recovery will take place? 
Um, I think a lot of times when we were discussing recovery in the past, it was going to be that everything will essentially open back up and then there will be a big boom in demand and a big boom in consumer spending. And now we're seeing that, you know, the, the economy is going to open up in phases instead. And so that big boom is not necessarily going to be a big boom. It might be something a little smaller. So how do you think that the changes in how the the different government entities are reopening for business is going to affect the Texas oil and gas industry and your recovery on your end? Well, without question, I, you know, it's, it's not as simple uh, as flipping a switch uh, as much as, you know, we all would hope. Um, I, I do see it. It's going to be a very slow uh, and often painful process. Uh, there's no two ways about it. Um, but we, you know, we will see continual demand uh, as we move into, you know, those, these each phases as we open up the economy for different things. Uh, it's going to be very gradual. Um, I don't see a, you know, like you said, an overnight, uh, you know, back to roaring times. Uh, it takes a lot of time to, to restart things. Um, I, you know, personally, I, you know, I think, you know, some people are going to be a little bit more hesitant to do things, um, you know, with schools being closed and travel. I mean, you know, what does summer look like? You know, are people going to hit the road and, you know, take road trips and, and do things. We, we just don't know yet. Um, so all of those factors are really going to have play into how fast we can recover, which I, I, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of lot smarter folks than I that are, you know, looking at models and things like that. But uh, the reality is, I think it's going to be a, uh, a year long process that we're going to be continuing to face challenges for the remainder of this year, uh, as we continue to rebound the economy. And a follow-up question to that, Luke, you talked about a 90% decrease in demand for jet fuel. So how important is the recovery of the airline industry and going to be towards the recovery of the Texas oil and gas industry? Uh, very, very, very important. Um, you know, commercial air travel um, is, you know, has been a it's, it's sometimes as painful as it is, you know, with delays. And I think some of us would, would, would welcome uh, being delayed a few hours just so we can get to travel and go see loved ones or go have a vacation. Uh, but it's, it's vital, uh, without question. Um, without a healthy airline industry, um, we're not selling as much product. I mean, it's just, you know, it's simple economics. Um, we hope to see the airlines, I think, you know, the, the, the bailout packages and some of the stimulus money that's going, I, I, I don't follow it completely on the airline side because I'm just not involved in that side of the business. But uh, I hopefully, you know, these airlines will will rebound. Um, I know they're doing the same thing that every other industry is doing. They're curtailing flights, um, making changes, uh, operating on skeleton crews, you know, less flights, less even some smaller airplanes to keep things moving. Uh, but no question about it, if, if, if we can get the airline industry up and running and people can feel confident to be safe uh, on those flights, then that's going to help tremendously to, to revive our industry. Well, Luke, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great conversation, great information, uh, and definitely information for us to consider as we move forward in the future and are looking at state spending uh, for this next couple of fiscal years. 
definitely gave us a lot of things to talk about with our elected officials at the state level. Uh, Cindy, our CEO, did she is logged on. She did want me to let you know that she wanted to thank you so much for doing this for us. Uh, she is sad that we weren't able to do this in person, but glad that we were able to at least you know connect virtually in this new this new way of doing business. <laughs> well, thank you, Cindy. Uh, it's, it's good to hear that you're on. I, I, I can't wait to come give you a hug because uh, I know this might be you know normal for now, this virtual stuff, but nothing beats seeing people face to face and and engaging like you all do at the chamber and the wonderful work that y'all do. And so um, y'all stay safe out there and I hope we can we can see each other all very soon. Again, thank you so much, Luke, for such a wonderful conversation. I also want to thank all of our attendees for joining us today. Um, if you are interested in doing business with the state of Texas, we've talked a lot about the industry in the state of Texas, but if you're interested in doing business with state agencies, we are doing a session on the Texas State Hub certification, how you can get certified, why you should get certified, and how to do business with state agencies. So make sure to join us for that tomorrow at 10 a.m. Um, and with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Thank you all for joining us today and just make sure to stay safe, stay healthy, and practice social distancing. Thank you again, Luke. Thanks, y'all. Take care. I want to thank our special guest, Luke Legate, for joining us and answering questions live from our listeners. Of course, this is Michelle, the host of Sharing Sweat Equity, a business podcast produced by the El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and the Minority Women's Enterprise Diversity Center. Before I sign off, I want to give a big thank you to our partners, Sun Carpets and also Epicenter. Please, if you're looking for flooring, if you are looking for a commercial real estate location, make sure to reach out to Sun Carpets and Epicenter. We will see you all on our next episode of Sharing Sweat Equity. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and make sure to practice social distancing. Thanks, everybody.